0: Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Abigail Scott Dunaway, Jesse Applegate, and Richard Newberger each helped to shape the Oregon we know today. We get to know them in Eminent Oregonians, a new book published by longtime Daily Historian editor and publisher Steve Forrester. Forrester writes about Newberger. R. Gregory Noakes writes about Applegate. And Jane Kirkpatrick writes about Dunaway. All three authors talked about their subjects last week at Fort George's Ails and Ideas. Jane Kirkpatrick spoke first about Abigail Scott Dunaway.
1: First of all, she was a daughter. She was the second uh, living child, um, and there were 12, ultimately, children. And when she was 10, her mother, they lived in Illinois at the time, her mother had just given birth to yet another daughter, and said to her how sad she was that she had girls because girls' lives were so hard. Uh, they lived in Illinois and her father was a um, had developed a, a mill. And uh, I looked at these beams up here and wondered about what life would have been like. He had a sawmill, but he wanted very much to go west. And her mother uh, said, We've always lived on the edge of the frontier and it's finally caught up with us. Couldn't we stay? But he had a calling to go west and also uh, there were some questions about some financial difficulties that they had and they were relatives had come west. And so as a daughter, she was, um, she went. That's what you did as a child. She was pr- uh, 16 or so when they headed west and she had a lot of health issues already, even at that age. And so she was not asked to do a lot of the heavy work on the wagon train, but she was um, the keeper of the story. She was the one who wrote the, um, the, the journal that is at the Oregon Historical Society. She was also a, um, a wife. They arrived in the Oregon Territory and her mother on the way died, along with a younger brother. And her father remarried quite soon after they made it to Oregon. And then a potential scandal occurred because it was discovered that his new wife was already pregnant and not with a husband that she had had. And so, and and this was, such an uproar and such a difficult situation for the girls in that household, because it was considered scandalous if the word got out, and so um, the girls who were of marriage age were really rushed into marriage, and the other girls were farmed out with those married sisters, so that their reputations would not be questioned. Abigail had gotten a job teaching, even though she had no um, formal, or very little formal educational uh, experience. She passed the teacher's test and was teaching um, in a little school and was loved it because she had her own money. But the marriage was important. Um, fortunately, she loved Ben. Dunaway who was kind of an affable singing farmer who trained horses um, and was well liked in the community that they were in and so she became a wife. And then nine months later in two weeks she became a mother and she was a mother of six children. The first child was a girl and I think she and her memoir talks about having the same concern that her own mother had about how hard a child's life would be, a girl's life would be. And then she had five sons who she referred to as voters. I love that. (laughs) They were her sons, but they could vote eventually, and so they were voters. Uh, She was also a businesswoman. She uh, began to, after she was um, teaching, she actually started a school And um, it was a subscription school because schools were not free at that time. And so people paid and she called it the Union School, which was a pretty clear indication of how she felt having to do with the Confederacy and the Union. Uh, She turned the house into a boarding house. And so she would take girls in from the outlying country and they would um, stay and sleep upstairs and, and then go off to work. So she was like always looking for where she could make money. She um, had an egg money and she had dairy money, and they were actually had a pretty good little farm um, in that in the Albany area. And and then one day uh, Ben uh, decided that he would co-sign some notes for a friend, and when he did that, um, the the friend reneged and they lost that farm, and that changed the trajectory, I think, of both their marriage and also of her life. She became more and more worried about money and about how to make it. So she was a businesswoman, and she got the idea to have a millinery, and she got Jacob Meyer from Portland to loan her money, and she went to San Francisco to buy product, and that's where she got involved in in women's suffrage, and that became the huge um, passion of her life. She was also a caregiver. Ben was injured um, when he was training horses at one point and for much of his life, um, he struggled with pain and with recurring pain and if you've ever had chronic pain, you know how difficult that can be and so she also became a caregiver. She was also a sister. She had four uh, other sisters and, um, and she had one surviving younger brother who was Harvey Scott and he became the um, editor of the Oregonian. But in the first campaign, which was 1884, uh, Abigail was already passionate about getting women the vote because she felt that that was the only way that women were going to be able to become uh, able to set their own sails and secure their own future. And and Ben was very supportive of that, and that was really important for her because she didn't wanna have uh, any kind of maligning about whether she was a good mother or not. That was really important for her. And so um, in 1884, which was the first campaign, her sisters and she met with Harvey, um, who was opposed to women's suffrage. But he wanted to run for senator at some point, and they convinced him that it would pass, and he didn't want to be on the other side of that. And they really believed it would pass because they dealt with a lot of the rural people. And Harvey, of course, was Portland. And sometimes I think not much has changed. Um, but Harvey, um, they convinced him because a lot of the rural people saw women as more equal. They they worked beside their wives. They worked in the fields, they saw their mothers milk cows and make cheese, and they felt like they should have a say in how their life was, whether they could hold their own money and make their own decisions and own property. And so they convinced him that it would pass, and it did pass in the rural area, but it totally failed in the Portland area, and so it failed statewide. And it wasn't until 1912 that it finally passed Harvey never after that he did write some editorials in 1884 but after that he never supported women's suffrage and finally she was a um, she was an author and an editor and a newspaper owner which is for women of that time was just there was a tiny percentage of women who owned a newspaper and ran a newspaper and she was probably incredibly um, Uh, persuasive because everybody in the family was involved in the newspaper, all the boys, um, Clarabelle, her daughter, and they were also involved in suffrage. And so Clarabelle would play the piano at the various presentations that she would make. But really the passion of her life was getting women the vote. She felt that women were vulnerable and the only way that that was going to change uh, was if women got the vote. She wanted to uh, have women's suffrage happen as a still hunt, she called it. She liked to sort of talk to different men and talk to their wives as opposed to uh, having rabble rousing going on and going into bars and saloons. And she didn't wanna have suffrage associated with prohibition. Um, her, she was successful ultimately in 1912 and got the vote. And so she was also a, um, a citizen who could vote. By the time she died, and she was the first person to register to vote in Multnomah County, and one of the first, uh, the first woman to be um, on a jury, as well. Uh, the great lyrical poet Van Gierth said, "What people don't realize is once you make a commitment to something, then Providence moves, and things begin to happen that you otherwise never could have imagined." I think that Abigail Scott Dunaway is a living example of that, of making a commitment and having her life changed. She was um, both gifted and exceptional, and she lived an extraordinary life, one well worthy of all of us knowing about and remembering. So I hope you'll enjoy um, learning more about her if you haven't, and if you already know about her, that you might find some insights. Um, in the work that we've put together in this book. So, thank you.
2: Thank you Very nice. Well, good evening, I'm Greg Noakes. It's a pleasure to be here this evening and what a wonderful place, I am so impressed. Jesse Applegate never had his picture taken. Now, why didn't he have his picture taken? He thought he was ugly. And there were cameras in those days, but he just felt he was, a this is a sense of his personality, He's a very proud man, um, abrasive, didn't get along well with people, and he was one of four brothers. His brothers had no problem having their pictures taken. Uh, Lindsay and, and Charles are both really quite handsome men, and we really don't know what, uh, what Jesse even looked like, but he was a tall man, six foot, uh, over six feet, very athletic and probably not as ugly as he thought that he was. The Applegate brothers, the three of them, Jesse Lindsay and Charles came out to Oregon and ate from Missouri in 1843. The three of them had very successful farms along the Osage River in Missouri which were doing quite well especially Jesse. But Jesse had this issue with slavery. Missouri was a slave state and he did not have slaves for the most part in his life. But to work his farm, he had to hire slaves. He rented slaves, you know, is what he did from other slave owners to do his farm work because you couldn't get a white person, Jesse said, to work on the farm at the wages for wages, and. um, So Jesse decided, he heard about this free land in Oregon, which was being offered, and so 1843, he convinced his brothers, now he was the youngest of four brothers, but he convinced him, but he was also the family leader, he convinced them to come to Oregon and take advantage of this free land that was being given out here. Oregon, of course, was not yet yet a state at that time. And so he helped to organize the first major wagon train known as the Great Migration, um, it came out in 1843 and it brought more than a 1,000 settlers to Oregon. You probably all, all know this story, but I just want to emphasize Jesse's role in, uh, in the formation of early Oregon. Uh, one of the things that he did when he got here, he, uh, he, sir, he was a member of the Oregon Constitutional Convention meeting in 1847, uh, preparing the state for statehood. And what was the most compelling issue before the Constitutional Convention? Slavery, whether Oregon would become a slave state or not. And it was amazing to me as I got into this book and how much sentiment there was for slavery in Oregon in this period. And it's important also to note the fact that slavery eventually was voted down in election in 1847. Decisively, the issue really turned on economy do we want to work next to black slaves? And we may have the same problem here that they had in Missouri, that you can't get a white man to work anymore if people are pulling slaves. Um, so Jesse was, was successful in helping to convince the delegates um, and, the, and voters to vote against slavery, but at the same time, it was unsuccessful in, uh, in, in the Black Exclusion Act. The Constitutional Convention, approved a, a act in the Constitution which banned African Americans from coming to Oregon, whether they were slave or whether they were free. Jesse was so disgusted by that that he walked out of the convention and never signed the Constitution, even though he had a major force in shaping the, the Constitution in that time. Jesse fought hard uh, against slavery, and he also was a friend of Native Americans, but he, again, there was contradictions in his life because eventually he lost all his money in, uh, in Yonkala. Uh, house didn't survive, was torn, bought and torn down by somebody else, and he moved into Northern California. Now when he was in Oregon, Jesse had a lot of friends among the native tribes, although he also sided with, with, with settlers when they were being hassled by tribes. Again, a contradiction in his, uh, his life, because in Northern California, he worked, for, he worked on a large ranch down there, and um, at the time that the, uh, the Modoc, uh, Modoc Indians were having a lot of clashes with the settlers, and he took the side of the settlers. And there's a lot of controversy about his role in, in the Modoc War in 1883. I have a friend in California who has written a book about the Modoc War who basically has, has Jesse as being a main instigator of the war that he was helping to preserve this land, this large ranch that he was managing and wanted to chase the Modocs out of Northern California back to a reservation in Oregon where they had been for a while, near today's Klamath Falls. Then there's another view that he was trying to bring peace between uh, the whites and the Modocs. But whatever the result was, there was a, a war, a savage war in 1883 involving the Modocs. Jesse had some role which he's never talked very much about, in which the history books disagree on. But eventually the Modocs had to give up. They were trapped, and there was a trial in, in the Klamath Falls, today's Klamath Falls. And so Captain Jack and other leaders of the Modocs were tried in this period. Um, so Jesse had kind of a, had this life of contradictions on slavery. He was very much against slavery, abdicated against slavery, and yet he had a slave. But there were these contradictions in Jesse's life. Jesse eventually fell on very hard times. His wife of many years died. He lost all of his wealth, and something happened to him mentally, and he ended up in, uh, in an insane asylum in Oregon and uh, once it went and he was released from the asylum and went to live with a son and it was kind of a sad ending for poor Jesse in that period. But in terms of Jesse's life and his contribution to Oregon, it was a major contribution. He contributed, he helped to discover Oregon, helped to develop it. The Applegate Trail in Southern Oregon, which was an alternative to the trail that came down the Columbia River, was a lifesaver for many people. Um, I mentioned slavery. And, uh, and his role in the Constitution. So he made a major contribution uh, to the state, and I write about this in the book that, uh, that Steve has published, and so I recommend it to you all. Thank you very much.
3: My father and Dick Newberger were uh, friends beginning in the 1930s. They were both sports editors of their respective college uh, newspapers. My dad was at Oregon State College, today OSU of course, and Dick was at the University of Oregon. They also had the same um, mentor at the Oregonian, the sports editor named L.H. Gregory. So the Newburgers would come to our home in Pendleton during the 1950s. Dick uh, was a prodigy and he was also quite precocious. By the time he lived, he lived in a hurry too. His whole life he was sort of in a hurry as though he knew he'd die at the age of 47. By the time he dies at the age of 47, he has written some 750 articles published in national magazines, even more in newspapers. He's written or co-authored seven books he became the first Democrat that Oregon sent to the U.S. Senate in 40 years uh, during the election of 1954, and his election turned the Senate from Republican to Democrat, kind of like the one we, the one we just had. Also like the one we just had, it took two days to count the votes in that election, 1954. He won by 2,462 votes statewide, which was less than one vote per precinct across Oregon. And um, it was a, an especially controversial election. Uh, I asked my, my father was one of three newspaper editors in Oregon who supported him in the days that that was uh, a bigger deal than it is now. And uh, I asked him once about how that was and he said it was pretty tough, meaning that uh, he took a lot of heat for his endorsement. He, uh, upon election to the Senate, he became the second Jew elected to the U.S. Senate uh, since the passage of the 17th Amendment, which uh, required direct election of U.S. Senators. The first Jew was uh, Herbert Lehman of New York State, uh, who interestingly gave Newberger a contribution of $500 in that campaign. In 1954, that was a pretty healthy campaign contribution. In the Senate, he um, was an original co-sponsor of what became the National Wilderness Act of 1964, and he authored the uh, Highway Beautification Act. He was both a writer and a politician, which is an interesting competition, a combination, I should say. The sort of um, uh, marquee names in that of that combination are Winston Churchill and Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, it's also true of many senators such as J. William Fulbright and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, but none of them uh, in America wrote for such a broad audience as Newberger did. He hit all the magazines. He hit the high intellect level magazines, New York Times Magazine, Harper's, The Atlantic, and so forth, and then he would write for Field and Stream and Argosy, and uh, the Ford, many magazines long vanished, the Ford Times and so forth. He was, a, he was a master at selling his own work and at selling himself. He was a very good marketer. He, in his campaign, he didn't have a marketing person. He was it. He didn't need a press secretary. He knew all of the uh, media in the state. Um, his writing capacity was uh, phenomenal. I, a woman I took journalism from at Portland State, Wilma Morrison, had uh, men at the Oregonian, and she told me how he would come into the Oregonian. He was not an employee, uh, uh, I don't know if he ever was uh, fully an employee. He started writing for the Oregonian when he was like 17, I believe, they published his first work. And it's amusing to read. I quote it at length in the piece because any, any journalist like Greg Noakes and me will recognize his youthful enthusiasm in this piece, but it's, it's quite grand. At any rate, Wilmers said that he would come in and sit down at one of the standard typewriters, of course, and put in a piece of paper, and most of us who write for a living will dash off a sentence or two and think about it or a paragraph uh, and, uh, in the old days, smoke a cigarette and then come back to it. Well, Newberger would put in the paper, and he would start typing, and he would not stop until he was finished. He had this capacity, apparently, to envision the whole concept that he was after. It's also apparent, if you listen to his recorded, the few recordings that I've been able to find through the University of Oregon, of his uh, radio appearances on talk shows and uh, other speeches that he made, he, um, It was an unbroken uh, set of uh, thoughts that he would come out with, which made him a pretty fearsome uh, opponent on the campaign trail. And then the other huge factor was Senator Wayne Morris, uh, who many of you in this room, I think, have something of a living memory of. Morris was Dick's law professor at the University of Oregon. He flunked him in criminal law, and uh, Dick left the university. Uh, Dick had no degree. Took me a while to figure that one out because you'll find that misinformation in lots of places that he's a graduate of the University of Oregon, he's not. Uh, Ironically, my father was not a grad either of Oregon State, so I find it amusing that these two ultimate dropouts got to know each other in the 30s. Um, But Morris was a very, it was a fascinating relationship it is to discover through their correspondence. It begins with the the law school experience and getting, um, he wasn't booted out, but he decided to leave, we'll we'll put it that way. And um, then once Dick uh, tries electoral politics, running for the State House out of Multnomah County and, and then the State Senate, Morris becomes his mentor and advisor on how you do that, and contributor, even financial contributor, and makes speeches on his behalf. And that proceeds into 1954 when he runs for the Senate. Morris is then, he's been a Republican, and in those days, the progressive party in Oregon was the Republican Party. The Democrats were a largely inarticulate, backward-looking party. And Dick's essential accomplishment was to turn that around. And in that essence, he really created what's become the modern Democratic Party of Oregon. He was also a major influence on young Tom McCall. McCall said he was the biggest influence on him, on he, on McCall. It was largely, I think, Dick's conservationist sentiments that McCall adopted. When Dick gets to the Senate in 1954, um, conservationists around the country find in him uh, an ally they didn't have before. It's fascinating to look through his papers and see the correspondence from people across the country, not just Oregon, but across the country, saying I feel better now that you're in the Senate. And these were people acknowledging themselves as conservationists. I I open my chapter with this story of Dick going to Nazi Germany in 1933. Uh, He was uh, a sophomore at the University of Oregon, two years out of high school. And he enlists his uncle Julius, who can speak German, to come with him. They go back to uh, the family homes in Heinstadt, Germany, and they stay off the beaten track. And essentially, with Dick's interviewing ability and Julius's command of German, uh, Dick is able to talk to common people and he gains evidence of what the brown shirts are doing, the kind of, of pain and death that they're inflicting on Jews. And uh, he comes back to New York City. He goes to the New York Times to try to sell the story. They won't use it. Uh, Dick's mother told me that uh, they could not substantiate it, so they wouldn't use it. So he went to the Nation magazine um, and uh, met Ernest Greening, who was an editor there, And Greening commissioned him to write the article. Paid him $38 for it in 1933. And um, as Greening said, it was an epic-making article. It was the uh, first-hand appearance by an American in an American publication uh, as to what he had seen there. And he instantly at that point, and he's at this point, I think 2021, becomes a national figure, especially in Jewish circles. And the article I quote at at some length in the piece um, makes the prediction right then that the Jews are finished in Germany and so on and so forth. Uh, Everyone I have shown that piece to because it's a rather obscure piece of work. You can find it online, you can find the whole piece. It's called The New Germany. Um, Find it uh, rather bracing and also uh, prophetic. Thank
0: you. That was Steve Forrester talking about Richard Newberger. Earlier, our Gregory Noakes told us about Jesse Applegate, and Jane Kirkpatrick discussed Abigail Scott Dunaway. The three authors joined forces in the new book, Eminent Oregonians. Thanks for listening to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocker.